has long been the land of opportunity. Economies ebb and flow. Business climates, interest rates, occupancy, they rise and they fall. The national debt rises and rises. And through it all, many Americans continue to strike out on their own to take a shot at making a dream a reality. Calvin Coolidge once said that America's chief business was business. Truly, entrepreneurship runs hot in our veins, from Ben Franklin to Henry Ford to Elon Musk. And we're still at it, trying to make our way through lockdowns, ready for whatever lies ahead. Many business owners are switching gears to navigate the seismic shift in our nation and in our operations. Small businesses, for all the heartburn they've encountered of late, remain the economic engine of the country. How much so? There are over 30 million small businesses in the U.S. today. 99.9% of U.S. business are small business. They employ nearly half the nation's private workforce. The apartment business holds a similar balance. Private and small businesses own 94 to 95% of the nation's apartment stock. It's been over 50 years now. The year was 1969 when Paul Flager began security properties. The company was built on syndications, a program designed to ease tax burdens through investments in affordable housing. Syndications made many a fortune, as our viewers of a certain age will remember, including your host. But all good things must come to an end. An adage many, particularly in real estate, still have a hard time believing. Like any good entrepreneur, Security Properties founder Paul Flager briefly dabbled in metering services, telephony, and cable television, but the siren of apartments continued to call. By 2000, Security Properties was back full throttle in the apartment business. Today, the firm has over 26,000 units across the United States, across a $6 billion portfolio. Dan Burns, Security Properties Managing Director of Conventional Investments, works from beautiful Seattle, Washington, home of waterlocks and flying fish. Dan, we're glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Linda. I'm glad to be here. Degrees from Columbia and Berkeley, billions in transactions for HFF. Tell us about your path to security properties. Well, I always, I always just knew I wanted to get into real estate. I don't know why, but you'll find across most professionals in this business, there is just this, like in your words, siren call to real estate. I just like big buildings and <laughs> uh, I, I've just always been attracted to this industry. I think that whatever your interests are, whatever your skill set, there's a place for it in real estate. And I certainly found that, um, you know, through my career path. Uh, I love being on the deal side, and that's where I started and where I've essentially been the whole time. When I was at HFF in New York, it was uh, selling large buildings of every product type in every market in the country, and there couldn't have been a better way to, to get to um, know the business than to just see incredible flow of deals, um, all product types. I, I tell people coming into the business, that's, that's as good a way as you can start, because um, you can really kind of find what works for you when you're looking at everything and you really can start to see how everybody uh, across a pretty wide spectrum sees the business. 
So that was my education, my, my kind of doctorate in real estate for the first seven years. And then I went to Berkeley to get my business degree because I really did want to move to the private side. Um, transactions uh, as a broker are, are certainly interesting, but it's, it's, I think, even more fun when you got some skin in the game. So uh, Seattle was always a place I wanted to move. It's where my wife was from and where we wanted to go to start a family. And looking to do multifamily in Seattle, there's really kind of one choice, and that's security properties. Um, they've been a dominant market leader there for a long time and have continued to do so and, and grow throughout my tenure there, um, thanks to just the incredible team that we have there. So uh, I've been at security for going on nine years, which seems crazy at this point. Um, working my way up to MD of conventional investments, which basically runs, uh, conventional to us means existing market rate product. So buying and selling uh, existing apartment communities, essentially from Denver West plus Nashville and about 10 core markets uh, with equity partners ranging from insurance companies to opportunity funds to you know, endowments, to everything in between. Any, anybody with a big chunk of money who's looking to make a nice yield, um, we, we hope to have a role for them as a sponsor, finding them attractive risk adjusted returns in the multifamily sector. So, uh, that's, that's my, my, uh, background in a nutshell. And I'm, uh, excited to, to be here and talk about this, <laughs> this interesting time we find ourselves in. Security properties does a lot of buying and selling, not so much holding Dan. What are the deciding factors in turning our holding and how much of this is driven by investors? Well, like I mentioned, we capitalize our deals generally about 90-10 on the equity side with 90% of that money coming from one of our 30 or so institutional equity partners. Um, it's 90% their money and it really, it's a collaborative decision about when we sell, but, you know, tie goes to the, <laughs> goes to the 90%. So um, our goal is to have repeat business and repeat partners. That's that's really the only way that you can be successful in this business is to serve your partners before you serve yourself. So um, if a partner wants to hold, we will hold. If a partner wants to sell, uh, we will sell. There's you know little details of how we can work that out um, if there's disagreement, but it, it always has to be done in a way that's, that's amicable and that uh, leads to future business together. So um, our average hold period has been about three and a half years on the market rate side. Obviously, with affordable, there's regulations that require you to hold for longer. So we'll just talk about market rate for now. Um, we don't underwrite deals to hold them for three years. Our average underwritten hold generally ties with our debt, which is generally seven to 10 years. So we don't go into these deals expecting to flip them in a couple of years. What we've found, at least in my tenure at SP, which is, you know, again, about nine years, the market has appreciated uh, much more quickly than our underwriting anticipated it would. We do try to be conservative with our underwriting. So when we make the decision to sell, it's generally that we have, we, we and our partners agree that we've completed our business plan. And there's different ways to define what the business plan is, and that can shift over time as well for a given deal. A business plan doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to renovate every unit if we say we will and do all the physical capex. Maybe completing the business plan means that the asset has appreciated to what we thought our underwritten exit price was going to be. Um, and it does shift over time and it shifts with partner needs. So, you know, generally, if you're not a if you're not a buyer, you're a seller. And that often drives our decision making as well. 
So, um, you know, for us personally, we're a sponsor, we're promote driven. It's nice to sell a little sooner, but uh, we have a lot of deals where we're in the promote already and we're just trying to do what's right for the deal. And that, that can kind of shift for, you know, different partners, different, different markets. Um, it's, it's always a give and take. Um, but in general, the, the run up that we've seen in this market, which has been underwritten in a large part due to actual rent growth. It's not just cap rate compression, although that certainly has played a large role in it. But, you know, if markets experience the type of rent growth that we thought would take 10 years within three years, and we think uh, others may be more aggressive with their projections going forward, maybe that's a good time to sell. Um, If we'd like to sell and our partner doesn't, we generally will negotiate a buyout of our position. If vice versa, then we'll generate a a recap with uh, bringing in an equity partner um, to replace our existing equity partner, which we've done uh, a good a good amount of in the last two to three years as well. Um, we found that that's a good way to generate good pricing and also to get good investor interest on the buy side. So again, the goal is to have everybody go home happy at the end of the day. And we don't mind a little churn as long as it's what makes sense for the, for the asset and for the equity. It's a lot, a lot of personalities, um, but we, we love who we work with. We get to work with really smart people. Our institutional partners, um, overwhelmingly are very sophisticated, um, not just in real estate, but in, in other areas as well, depending on, on which partner we're talking about. You know, real estate in general is, is a portion of their portfolio. And even if we're dealing with the real estate, uh, the head of real estate for a given you know, endowment or institution, um, they touch a lot of areas within the financial world that we don't. So we get really interesting perspective every time we talk to them as well. And it's, it's always very educational to see what they're seeing throughout their portfolio and, and what's driving their, their real estate decision making. Let me ask you, are investors asking for green features or graspy certs on the properties you manage? Uh, the, well, if we're buying new construction, it's generally there already and doesn't, real, doesn't really impact debt. Debt is really what drives it. It's more the type of debt that you can get for adding green features than it is having the green features already. Um, you know, anything operational, if it's already in there, is basically already factored into the underwriting when you buy it. So if your low flow shower heads are saving you a little bit of operating expense, that's already in your cap rate. So it doesn't really impact uh, buy side acquisition underwriting. And, and I have not seen it on the institutional equity side really impact uh, investor demand. Um, where, where it has been helpful is uh, agency green financing um, right now is probably worth about 10 to 20 bips, which is maybe one to 2% on leverage uh, of additional leverage. But uh, in the past, it's been even more. And sometimes that bucket, uh, Fannie and Freddie have more, more of that type of debt capital than uh, non-green financing types of capital. So green financing is helpful to hit underwriting returns, but that also is generally priced in as well. So, I guess the short answer is when we build as a developer, we certainly look to do everything we can from that perspective. Um, and that will have more impact on uh, what equity is looking for. But on the existing product side, it, it really is more kind of an economic question. Um, and that's really debt driven, we found. That's good to hear. The business has not changed that much. Yeah. <laughs> Se- security properties laid low in buying and selling for most of 2020. Why did you sit it out? 
Well, so we had a pretty active January and February. We bought a deal in Renton up here and a deal in Bend, Oregon, um, both of which we closed through the pandemic, kept our pricing, uh, you know, closed on the terms that we had before. And in retrospect on both deals, we still like the pricing there and we still like the opportunity and the growth in those markets. Then March happened. We, uh, <laughs> we, we were uh, looking to put some hard money into an offer in Vegas uh, the day that the NBA shut down and Tom Hanks got sick. And that evening, <laughs> it was interesting kind of tracking the hour by hour decision making. That was also the last day I've, I've been in, in our office besides to go uh, get mail. And yeah, and since then, since then, we've been at home and, and a lot has changed. But those first couple months, uh, what, real, what I found at real estate, and this goes for not just market rate, but also development and especially affordable, is the, the equity and the capital wants to know what the rules of the game are. Um, and get to some consensus on how we're looking at markets and how we're underwriting. And when there is not that consensus, that's where you really see a paralysis in terms of transactions. We saw it on the affordable side uh, when tax reform passed a couple years ago, when there was uncertainty about what the tax rates were going to be, especially on the corporate side, affordable didn't really know how to price tax credits. So there was a real pause in in, in the transaction market. And then once they figured out how to price them with what the new tax rates were, they became less expensive, but there was a new normal set and all of a sudden transactions kind of came back to normal and everybody adjusted to that. So from our perspective, kind of March, April, May, June, there was a lot of uncertainty about how do you underwrite rent growth? That's obviously the biggest driving factor in how we look at deals. Um, and there was there was uncertainty about that. There's uncertainty about what existing rents are, what are concessions going forward. You know, bad debt and things like that are really kind of a one to two year thing and don't really drive valuation. But rent growth is kind of the big thing. And there was a lack of consensus on that and on exit caps for that first couple months. So you didn't see a lot of transactions. You started seeing a few come out and started seeing a little bit of consensus, specifically in you know in the markets we cover in Phoenix uh, and to a certain extent Denver. And then other markets started coming back online and you started getting, you know, a new normal in terms of, okay, you know, if we want to win a deal, rent growth is going to be flat, but maybe a little positive if we're in certain markets like Phoenix. And then it started getting more aggressive. Um, but what, what we really started seeing was a drive to use the cheap debt capital that was out there. For us, at first it was refinances, but then eventually it was new acquisitions and sales. Um, you know, correspondingly. So there was a couple months settling in process, but by the fall, there was pretty good deal flow. And uh, for our team, um, one of the guys on our team, uh, Davis Vaughn, uh, one of our senior directors, he, he had sourced a deal uh, from Bentall Green Oak that was three large assets, two in Portland and one in Denver, one of which we'd actually tied up uh, right before COVID happened and kind of agreed to go our separate ways and see what the world looked like. So we re-engaged on that, uh, engaged with Rockwood Capital, uh, one of our largest equity partners. And those three deals were each very complicated and that took up a lot of our time. So basically in the fall, we were working on that $405 million portfolio in addition to another recapitalization uh, of another asset that we had. So that tied tied us up, but at the end of the year, we bought $550 million worth of product, which feels pretty good to us. But what we're seeing now is incredibly aggressive pricing due to the scarcity of product. Um, we're, we're selling a few deals now and have been blown away 
by pricing. Even deals that we priced in December in markets like Phoenix are probably worth 15% more than they were even three months ago. And that's not driven by rent growth. That's really driven by equity accepting lower returns because there's just no product on the market right now. Our hope is, our, you know, from our portfolio being a proxy for the wider market, we're excited about where pricing is and getting ready to tee up some sales, uh, especially as spring leasing kind of picks up rent rolls and you get some momentum on, on the leasing side. So my hope is there will be more product out soon, but right now it's pretty much crickets. Um, to a, to a degree that I haven't seen even during quiet periods the last couple of years. Uh, so, but you will need a lot of pricing to have any impact, or sorry, a lot of product to have any impact on pricing right now. There's just too much money facing too few deals. Um, and in addition, the office, retail, and hotel sectors are very quiet. So a lot of that money has shifted to multi as well. So we're seeing a flood of equity driving returns down from where it was, you know, 12 to 13% a couple years ago, 10 to 11%, maybe 18 months ago. Now equity returns are really in the eight and a half to 10% for well-located, you know, value add or even core products. And that still makes sense when you look at the kind of yields you can get in other product types from a risk adjusted perspective or the negative yields you have internationally. Um, it kind of is what it is. It is the new normal that some of this is debt driven, but a lot of it is just equity pricing uh, coming in as well from a returns perspective. That's fascinating. Absolutely. I've just learned so much in the, in the last three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from my perspective, there's a lot of pent up product. And especially with where pricing is, I expect a lot of it to hit the market in the next 60 to 90 days. Oh boy, is that good news. I hope so. <laughs> that's what we're hearing from brokers as well, who are very active with BOVs. And that's what, what we see with, within our own portfolio. Yes. As much as we can extrapolate that. Well, Security Properties owns and manages in about 20 states, but you only develop in Oregon and Washington. What's that story? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So we have three main investment business units, uh, in addition to our property management side, which is really more of a service business for those, those three business units. Um, we have uh, our group, which is market rate uh, conventional, as we call it. Then we have development, as you mentioned, and affordable housing, which is really LIHTC resyndications and buying you know, yield deals, but all, all of which are subsidized, um, either on the financing side or on the, on the rental side. So on the affordable side, we were active in about 20 states. It used to be close to, I think, 40 before we sold off a lot of that legacy portfolio that you alluded to in the intro. Um, so some of the, that 20 states is a remnant of our legacy portfolio as a syndicator of uh, Section 8 and Section 42 developments dating back to 69. Um, but with affordable, about 10, there's probably about 10% as much affordable activity in terms of deal size as there is market rate activity. So you can't be as specific with affordable if you want to operate at scale, we've found. It really, you really do need to be national. So our affordable group, uh, we'll be active in Virginia, Massachusetts, Florida, and wherever, Texas, wherever they can find uh, deals that, that pencil for them. They can't uh, be as specific as just looking at a Seattle or a Portland because maybe Seattle and Portland are less advantageous for a group structure like ours. There's, there's a whole number of reasons, but affordable really to us makes sense to operate on a national scale. On the market rate side, we operate about 10 markets. So like I said, 
Denver West plus Nashville. So Seattle, Portland, Northern Southern California, Phoenix, Vegas, Denver, Salt Lake, yeah, and Nashville. And our business model for market rate acquisitions, unlike affordable, requires much more reliance on attracting equity partners to our deals. And the best way to attract those types of partners is to demonstrate a competitive advantage through scale and total coverage of the market. So this enables us to identify deals with the best risk-adjusted returns, but most importantly, have relationships with sellers and brokers to win deals without just paying a huge delta over the number two guy. Um, scale really does help us execute our business plans as well. There's, there's a lot of reason for real concentration to develop competitive advantage in certain markets on the market rate side. Um, we want to be experts with scale in all our target markets so we can provide the best value for those equity partners as a sponsor. But on the development side, it's even more micro-targeted. And particularly for the type of development that we do, which is high, generally high-end products in emerging neighborhoods. Uh, for that, you really do need to be laser-focused, block by block, and have really deep relationships with local municipalities. We really do try to be laser-focused on the development side, whereas on the market rate side, you really do need to cover an entire market, and you can be a little more of a generalist um, in a given market. You know, also for development, we're really targeting two to three deals a year. So we really want to stick to um, deals where we can spend a ton of time on them and have a really high likelihood of getting them entitled successfully and capitalized. Uh, on the multifamily, on the conventional side, we do 15 to 20 deals a year. So we do need to be in more markets to see the type of deal volume that enables us to do that. So we like that combination of affordable market rate and development as well as property management because to a certain degree, they're all counter cyclical. There are times when it's good to build, but it's not good to buy. There's times when it's good to do affordable, but market rate is struggling a little. There's times when affordable struggled, like when tax reform passed, but market rate was on fire. So we feel like there's a nice diversification by having those three business lines that, again, provides us that diversification while still being all multifamily. So that's uh, that's that's kind of the, the short answer to that one. And our development folks have been very successful. Um, they always get their sites entitled and they always get them entitled very quickly. And that is because of the depth of their relationships with the local municipalities. It speaks to the fact that uh, business principles live forever. <laughs> we're no we're long-term. The, I mean, the, the senior leadership at, at Security Properties I forget what our average tenure is. It's definitely 20 plus years at the firm. Um, there's a lot of lifers at our shop because uh, we, we love the way that SP has done business, the way that Paul Flager started it in affordable housing. That's a long-term business. You're going to own these deals for a long time. And it's all about relationships. It's completely relationship driven. From our, our perspective, from an equity side, with brokers, with sellers, um, you know, no, no deal is bigger than a relationship. And that's that's really the the reason we have been successful and built the team that we have, and why people uh, why people stick around for so long. Because uh, I I do really I, I saw this from an outside perspective when I joined, and I've certainly seen it on the inside as well. Just trying to do things the right way, and that's that's led to success and really good relationships, and more fun that way too. Our our friends are in our business, and our friends are our counterparties, and that really makes everything move much more smoothly. And I'm sure if you talk to our competitors, they would they would say the same thing. You know, people think in modernity that things change. They don't. We just yeah. use the same principles, and the folks who were 
again back in 69 I mean, it's the same kind of thought that it that creates success yeah we, we you know we're, we're always looking at what jobs are going to get automated out of existence and there's we feel very confident that this industry it really is it's a small circle and right. having a place in that circle is a real privilege because they're awesome people i i really love the people in this business and not just even our competitors, they're great people. Like you, it's really hard to be in this business if you don't, if you don't enjoy being around people and you don't enjoy, you know, serving, serving partners. So it's it created this pretty small circle where we all kind of know each other and it really works out well and it makes it really fun and makes it tough for somebody else to, to enter the, the field, which is good for us. So we are like, we like to keep the circle small people who own this stuff and uh, it makes it fun. Well, where does the time go? That is it for today's show. Thank you for coming on the show, Dan. It has been fascinating. Well, thank you very much, Linda. It's been a pleasure being on here and I look forward to seeing you again soon. The Call of the Entrepreneur. It makes our country the great nation that it is today. It takes a steady hand, courage, and a lot of ingenuity to navigate the gauntlet that has become the business of apartments. Dan Burns is one of the fearless among us. We're glad folks like Dan are at the helm, leading the way. I'm Linda Hoffman. Watch for our next exciting episode of NAHB Power Hitters.